off with the uh, the TR's pilot. And at the end, I told that little story about the letter from LRH. And before that, the, uh, the OW write-up. And then his critique on my final uh, video before the one that passed, when he said, this man has an overt. One thing I, I, I failed to note, but I'm sure was noted by many, uh -huh. the amount of perception he had to have to recognize that I was that much withdrawn from my PC that I had an overt. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that continually impressed me and everyone else on the pilot was LRH's ability to see what he was looking at mm -hmm. with no additives. And just to, to, to end off on that whole pilot phase, there was one uh, thing late in the pilot, and this is when Dan had come in. Dan wasn't the first missionary. There was another mission in there that had failed. I think at about the seven-month line, uh, they were recalled, and Dan and his second came down and started to get completions off the pilot. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was one point when it was, that was quite advanced, and my video came back with the following critique from LRH. He said, the evaluation in this TR2 would kill a pre-clear. Hmm. Well, that's pretty severe. Yeah. That's pretty severe. So I plugged this video in, and... Uh, I watched it again, and I honestly could not see any evaluation. And Dan looked at it, and we, we both looked at each other, and then we ran it again, and we ran it again, and we ran it again. And then I said, you know, maybe he was looking at somebody else's video, gave the critique to his communicator who slapped it onto my video. Uh-huh. And Dan looked at me, and I looked at him, and we both at the same time went, nah, <laughs> it must be my video. Uh -huh. This mistake had never been made before. So we got up, and we left the course room. We went down to the beach there in Clearwater. We went for a walk. We were out and around for a couple of hours just looking at things and getting some space. Then went back into the course room, and we plugged the video in and watched it again. And the evaluation in that TR2 would have killed a preclear. How could we have missed this? We both sat there slack-jawed, mm -hmm. looking at watching this video. But we recognized that LRH saw it instantly, pointed it out, and even after he pointed it out, we didn't see it until we got some space and so forth and so on. Then we looked at it, and this occurred again and again on the pilot, where he would make an observation on the video. And you'd have to look at it several times and then go, I'll be damned. That is definitely there. Mm -hmm. And then it was very obvious. But anyway, so that that brings the whole pilot to a close. Now, next step was I'm, I'm out and we're all waiting for this material to be released. So 70, 79 then, late, late 79, I went back to the mission. And, um, and I continued my post there. I was actually made the OES and uh, the many things started to change for the positive just by getting these basic tools in place. But then it occurred to everybody that I hadn't yet finished my internship at Flag, mm -hmm. And I would like to do that because I wanted to actually get into the chair myself. 
So I went up to uh, Detroit. I got myself replaced on that post, and I went to Detroit and started uh, restarted my internship there. And um, suddenly uh, there would be trouble. Somebody would be having trouble getting to his TRs in the course room, and I would go in and just bang him through. And then somebody else, and then somebody else. And it, and it got to be... Uh, a pretty common occurrence that I find myself in the course room helping people out on their TRs. And it was always something very simple and very basic, but they all had the same issues. They all, it was like one of these regional things where everybody has their, the same affectation in their TRs or the same false data or the same hidden standard or whatever it was that they had. It seemed to be a, a local area problem. Mm -hmm. So I suggested to the management, why don't we bring everybody into a room for a couple of days and I'll give them a communication workshop and we'll go over some of the obvious things that are always missed and just get them, you know, sort of an instant padding right from the bullet. And I said, because I'm doing this repeatedly over time, why don't we just invite the whole field in? So we had uh, 25 people come into this first workshop and they were completely blown out with very simple things. Uh, and continually the comments of, my God, I'd never thought of it like that. Well, it's right here in the bulletin. <laughs> you, know, I don't, you know, but I can understand how they could have missed it because all of us had missed it for years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't uncommon that here, this is a very obvious point. And you read this, and then you give them demonstrations of it, and they go, oh my God, I had that all wrong. And the interesting thing was the money paid for training from these two-day workshops went out the roof. I mean, went out the roof. These people who had been off lines for a while, in effect, found their MU, and it was naturally on the communication course, on the basic course. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this caused quite a stir. So they said, let's do another one. And, and so we did a second one. And that one had 50 people in it. And these people were coming from Ann Arbor and all over the place. And this thing was packed. And on that particular weekend, Jens Bagvat was in town. And um, he was the CEO of the Eastern United States Orgs at the time. And uh, he called me into his office. And interesting question. He said, what can I do to contribute to your purposes? And uh, I said, well, by golly, uh, you can help me get this information out to the world because the materials from the pilot had still not been released. Huh. And of course, I recognized how powerful this was and how important it was to our success. So I wanted to just do whatever I needed to do to get it out. Right. And he said, he said, very good. How would you like to do that? And I said, well, how about doing this workshop at every one of the East U.S. Orts? And he turned to his mission second and said, Make it happen. So off I went on a tour around the East U.S. Orgs. And it was fantastic, fantastically well received. Just these basics that are in every bulletin and um, the, the most commonly missed points. And then I, I found out about it in the West U.S. So off I went to the West U.S. You said uh, earlier that the first workshop you did, that a lot of the people were having the same misunderstanding, same phenomenon, same oh, yeah. TRRs. Yeah. Did you find that changed regionally? Or was it pretty Absolutely. much across the board? Oh, okay. Oh, no. 
It was, it was the original change in New Mexico, you know, because they, they learned from each other. They didn't learn from the bulletin. And, and that's where the basic false data was coming in, because a, a new student would come in and just look at what the old students were doing. And that's exactly what the old students had done before them. So it was sort of a seeping into the culture of any given community that this is the way TRs are done, and this was kind of chronically passed on. So you would read the bulletin, and then you would see them doing it and go, oh, that's what it means. And they would go with the mass rather than with the significance on the page. Right, sort of a group thing. <laughs> Exactly. So it's a, it was a very regional thing. You can, you can identify somebody by his comm cycle from what part of the country he's coming. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. But anyway, that, that answer your question, Karen? Yes, thank you. Okay. So now I'm in the East U.S., and I started up in Seattle, and that was a fantastic thing. I became part of this Flag Legionnaire program, and... Uh, just touring the country, doing these things in Denver and so on. Uh, interestingly enough, I got down to San Francisco, and I was standing on a street corner, and Alan Hollander was standing next to me at a light. Uh, this is a name you might be familiar with. He was standing next to me at a light crossing the street there in San Francisco. And I knew him. I said, uh, Alan, you don't probably know me, Mark Shuffler and so forth. And he absolutely looked like he'd seen a ghost. And, and I said, is everything okay? Are you all right? And he said, man, uh, yeah, yeah. And it turns out he had just come out of the Mission Holders Conference in San Francisco, where all of these mission holders were uh, manhandled, basically, by, by these management people. Hmm. And... Uh, it was wild. I mean, I wasn't at the meeting, but I was I was there in the city when it happened, and I saw the the immediate effect on Alan Hollander's features. He was quite distraught. Now this, but no, I didn't know what happened. I, what was that? This is the the Hollander of Hollander and Associates, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. He started he started Hollander Consultants. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Yeah, but this was obviously back in 82 when the, when the hammer fell on the front end of the church. Now, these were the biggest, uh, these, these were the biggest people in the church at the front end. These were the movers and the shakers, mm -hmm. and they were wiped out in that uh, meeting. And uh, that, was, that was really the death knell. Actually, what, it, what had occurred in 76 with the FSM program was the beginning of all this stuff, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the fact is mission holders were really ticked off because of the conditions that occurred after that uh, FSM alteration, the FSM program alteration. Anyway, a bunch of them were declared, and uh, it, was, it was wild. So anyway, like, I can, can we can we touch I, on that for a minute as far as the lineage? Which, what which came first? Uh, which came first? As far as the, the FSM issues or the mission holders conference? Well, well, the FSM program was the front end program. Uh, you know, the whole field staff member series LRH wrote uh, to create a front end. Now. In FSM series number one, LRH clearly makes the observation that the 
whole purpose of the field staff member program is to help contact new public and start them on the bridge. That's the whole purpose. Whole mm -hmm. means without any parts remaining. Right. That's its whole purpose. Now, if you get a guy started on the bridge and you continually select him up the bridge, you are his FSM all the way up the bridge. Mm -hmm. You follow? Yes. But Now, follow this. And you've got to confirm this in FSM series number one. But uh, I became quite an expert in this policy over the years, I can tell you. Sick check many times for it and so on. But, uh, here's the sequence. If I select you into the church for, for your first service, I am your FSM. And as long as I continually reselect you as you go up the line, I continue to be your FSM. If, however, I don't reselect you, then the church can select you for which I get paid no commission. Mm -hmm. Where does that commission go? Because 10% is paid to the FSM. Right. That 10% goes to the org staff member. Now, mind you, if I am a public reg and I get somebody on his first service, I can put in a selection slip for this guy. Now, as a staff member, I don't receive the commission myself. Mm -hmm. The staff shares it in their paycheck. Right, it's put into the kitty, in other words. It's put into the kitty, and the staff gets that money. It's 10% off the top. Mm -hmm. Every service delivered in the org, 10% of the money's paid for it goes to pay the staff. Mm -hmm. Mind you, it'll pay the FSM until the FSM stops selecting. Mm -hmm. So you see, I mean, when I was on staff in San Francisco, I was making a pretty damn fine income. I had a very good income. Now, now, relatively speaking and not adjusting for inflation, uh, at that time, what was a good living, living in San Francisco in the late 70s? <laughs> well... <laughs> Wherever you went in those days and you found a staff member, you found, generally found people that looked like be offering children. Uh, I mean, starving. Uh -huh. uh, when I first went on staff in London, I went to the pay window for my first paycheck. And this is after I came from a pretty heady income. And uh, they handed me the paycheck through the bars. And I opened my envelope and I'm going, okay. And, I, and it was one pound fifty. One pound and 50 pence. That was my weekly pay. That was my week paycheck. It's not much. But I realized I, I'm the new guy here, and they're just pulling my chain. Because <laughs> you, can't, you can't buy a shoelace with one pound 50. Right. And, uh, and, and, I, and I, I look back at the guys in the line who are all English pale faces and so forth, and they were all looking at me, you know. Uh, nobody's smiling. It's like, what a sense of humor these guys have. <laughs> Nobody's cracking a smile. I thought, this is amazing. And I went back up to the window and said, excuse me. And I just sort of butted in there and said, excuse me, uh, you just gave me this check. It's for one pound fifty. And he looked at me with a deadpan face that I thought was British humor. And uh, he said, yeah, that's your paycheck. Wow. And I said, no, you don't understand. It's one pound. It's only one pound fifty. 
for I just I just worked for eighty hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the fact is, I w- I would have gotten a job elsewhere to support my habit of of getting people to understand this technology. I was, come on, I'm on board. And and staff members generally were not well paid. Mm-hmm. That was not LRH's intention, as he made clear in FSM series number one. Ten percent, you know, out of the gross income is goes to the FSM. But everybody had a misunderstood word on what an FSM is. Mm-hmm. The person's FSM, if you really read and word clear FSM series number one, is the guy who selected you for your first service. Mm-hmm. Now, this evolved into various other things, like people walking up to you and saying, I'd like to be your FSM, but the guy's already on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Do you follow? Yes. Nobody, nobody else can be your FSM, according to FSM series number one, but the person who started you. And if I, did, if I started you and I didn't continue to reselect you, then the org staff members, would, wearing their hats, would recover me onto my services and continue me going. And the staff then would share in that commission from that point on. And when that org sent that person to the AO or to the ASHO or to FLAG or wherever, the, the commission that came back would pay the staff. San Francisco, the San Francisco mission when I was there was the best paid staff on the planet. Our reception was paid more than any org ED. (laughs) Because we applied FSM series number one and we were putting a lot of people up the bridge. Now, along comes 1976. LRH is observing the entire network, the entire world of FSMing, because he wrote this this FSM program back in the 60s, 65 and so forth. Mm -hmm. And... um, he observed that the Flag World Tours, when they came to town and they did events, there would be a flood of public coming to flag for services. But in those towns where they went, Los Angeles, New York, and so on, there were also FSEs, Flag Service Consultant Offices, which were based there from Flag to get the local public to the land base. Mm-hmm. You follow? Mm-hmm. This network is all over the world. And LRH noticed that the flow from the tours was huge compared to the flow from the FSC network. And he thought, well, that's really odd because these guys live right there. They have relationships with the local area FSMs. hmm why aren't, why aren't they getting any of this traffic? So he did the FSC network eval. This is how you find it on the SIR computer. Mm-hmm. The FSC network eval of 1976. And in there he made a fantastic discovery. Which was? He said, he said these guys operate differently. The Flag World Tour, when it comes to town works with local area FSMs, that is to say, field auditors, missions, and orgs who are starting people on their first services. They're working with those guys. So these guys would bring their public to the tours, 
and they would get the commissions for sending these people to flag. But the FSC network, the way they were operating, was these flag service consultants would go directly to people in the field and reg them for services at flag. And the FSM of this person was cut out of the game. You follow? If, yeah. if I'm a field auditor uh -huh. and I started people on the bridge and they're moving up the bridge and I select my public to flag, then I get a commission for doing that. Mm -hmm. But if the FSC network came directly to one of my people and registered for services at flag, I would get no commission. So in other words, they were bypassed. They were bypassing. They were bypassing the local area FSMs and this ARC broke. This upset them. Mm -hmm. And this is what LRH observed in his eval. Mm -hmm. The local area FSEs are bypassing their local area FSMs mm -hmm. and going directly to the public. And this ARC breaks the FSMs so they don't bring their public to the FSCs. They would wait until the tours came to town and then they would bring their public to uh, the tours. Mm -hmm. Now this becomes very significant because in that eval, LRH coined a term, which is a stooge FSM. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, a stooge is somebody who allows himself to be used for somebody else's advantage. Uh-huh. Uh, this is somebody that goes up to you, John, says, uh, Jonathan, I'd like to be your FSM. I have this much experience. I've gotten this many people up the bridge. Mm -hmm. And by golly, you work with me and I'll be your FSM. And you say, okay, that's great. But no, that's an illegal relationship. It doesn't exist in policy. The only person who can FSM you is the one who started you on the bridge or your local area organization who reaches out, contacts you, brings you in, uh, cleans you up in a session and so on. Okay, so I, I have a couple questions. So at this point, this is, a, this is right in the middle of the period of the largest expansion of Scientology in, the, right. in the United brilliant. States and world, worldwide, for the most part. And right. so you have two different entities. You've got the, the FSMs and the FSCs. The FSCs are bypassing the local FSMs, correct? Correct. Okay. Which is ARC breaking. The FS... Uh, the, the, the FSCs are ARC breaking the FSMs, so the FSMs are uh, unwilling to turn over their people to these guys because basically the lineage is now being broken of their selection of this particular individual. Is that correct? Well, it wasn't being broken; it was being bypassed and usurped. Usurped. Yeah, that would be the that would be the correct term <laughs> for that. So. Huh. Is this, in retrospect, where things started to go wrong through the lens of first dynamic or self-greed? Well, uh, there are varying viewpoints on that. Mm -hmm. But when you look at this thing in the 2020 view of history, mm -hmm. um, it, it kind of rolls out like this. LRH 
Elrich in his eval said he declared stooge FSMing a crime. Now, mind you, a stooge FSM is somebody, for example, from the field who goes to any public of a local org or a mission and selects them to a higher organization and takes the commission. Mm -hmm. Do you follow? That's absolutely illegal. Right. And, I, and when I was on staff in the, the late 80s and early 90s, that was still going on, mostly, though, through tours. So it had, it had graduated to that point to where, it, it, at least for the most part, from what I saw, the FSMs and the FSCs were cut out of the picture and the tour would take somebody who, let's say, was in the middle of their grades and then say, well, come on down to Flag and we'll give you a better deal, so on and so forth. Right. Yeah, that was a later evolution of okay. this. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Arbitrary. Okay. Yeah, the, the fundamental arbitrary was this. If you didn't start the guy on the bridge, you can't select him. Mm -hmm. But the crashing misunderstood word that was held onto by a man named David Light, who yep. was the head of the FSC at that time. Right. I, I, slick character, very slick character. Uh huh. Nice guy, too. He's a very, very nice guy. Yeah, I've, I've met him. He, okay. Well, he had a crashing misunderstood word on the word FSM. He thought the word FSM means somebody who selects persons for services in the church. Mm -hmm. That's false. That's absolutely false. An FSM is the person who contacts, handles, salvages, brings to understanding new public and gets them started on their first service. That is an FSM. But David, having this misunderstood word, that anybody who selects anybody is an FSM, created a program called the Flag FSM. And so now his staff at the FSC in Los Angeles, for example, which had three staff, went out and recruited a number of field regs, basically, and designated them Flag FSM. This had a certain altitude to it. Right. I'm a superior FSM. No, there's only one FSM. He's the guy that starts a guy on the bridge. Mm -hmm. But these flag FSMs were then sent out into the field at, to do exactly what the FSCs had been doing before then, which is bypassing the real FSMs, selecting their public to flag, and taking commissions. They had flag FSMs making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year mm -hmm. that should have been going to staff members in the church. So this, this was the death knell of the front end. Right. Because, because the very things that LRH declared or made a crime in that reference in the FSC network evaluation of 1976 suddenly became the operating basis of flag, the senior org. This bypassed every mission holder in the country. You follow? Yeah, and this was and this was was, but this was before the mission holders conference too, correct? This is this well that didn't happen until 1982 and it became necessary quote unquote because these mission holders started to hold on to their public. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were holding on to their public was because they couldn't pay their bills. They weren't getting FSMC anymore. It, 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 the, it started a scarcity, in other words. 
Exactly. Suddenly, these mission holders, I mean, Peter Crundle, an old friend of mine, unbelievable front-end guy, mission holder par excellence. This man sent 35 people a week to his local org. Wow. 35 people a week came out of his mission. This is, this is 19, you know, 78, 79. Uh, you know, this guy would do an FSM rally, a convention at the Bonaventure in Los Angeles and have 350 people show up for the darn thing, paying a couple of hundred dollars each to learn how to disseminate. And the entire training was about how to introduce new people to the subject in a way that would positively affect their lives. Mm -hmm. And Peter was a master at this. But now all of this public that he was sending in, and his mission was doing very well, his staff were very well taken care of, sharing the FSM commission and so on. Uh, suddenly, uh, these flag FSMs are swooping in like a bunch of vultures. Mm -hmm. And they're just picking people out of the field all over the place. And these mission holders are going crazy because their staffs are being compromised. Right. Their income lines. And like Ron says, a mission can't survive without its field staff member commission. Right. Uh, the, co the commission that it gets from upper echelons is what allows them to really prosper. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that commission was being taken away from them. And in reaction to that, they had to hold on to their public and take them all the way up the line to clear. In 1982, the Mission Holder Conference comes, and David Miscavige comes in and says, you're all suppressors. You're holding on to your public. You're not sending them up the line. <laughs> so in point of fact, they created the scenario that made the Mission Holders uh, dive to protect their troops, and they threw up their shields and went onto this battlefield and were completely wiped out. It was the Battle of Gallipoli mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it wiped these unbelievable soldiers of Scientology out. And with them, that, that's the church. Mm -hmm. Because as LRH again says in the policy of proportional marketing, it is unique to our activity that in order to pull off the OT levels, the upper levels, we have to put most of our activity at the front end. Mm -hmm. It is unique to our activities that in order to pull off the upper levels, we have to put most of our attention at the front end. And that was the purpose of the field staff member program, which was wiped out in 1976. And then as it was more and more altered and changed and so forth, uh, you know, that was it. The church, now mind you, the statistics continued to climb even through the 80s uh, as, as as Dan Kuhn mentioned to me once, the statistic looked like Mount Fuji. It went up, up, up until uh, mid, uh, late 80s, and then it turned and went down, 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 because they started to use up their public, and no new public were coming in anymore. Mm -hmm. the, the flag FSMs were going crazy, just getting people to flag, and then flag became a menace it was bypassing the entire mission and org network and going in and stealing their publics. Right. They had unmocked Division 6, basically, on a global scale. That's right. And the whole world, of course, was flags, Div 6, but they weren't allowing them to do their jobs. They went down and bypassed that. Mm -hmm. 
which is another thing, interestingly enough, that occurred with international events, which started again in the early 80s. You've heard about these international events. You've probably attended international events. Uh -huh. Well, Ron only had one event that was an international event. He only did one. I don't know if you guys were there, but, but uh, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was quite an event. Um, his daughter Diana was playing the piano when Arthur was there. It was quite an event, uh -huh. but it was an international event. And LRH observed after that event that the international stats crashed. He Why did an evaluation that? on it, and he discovered that everybody went off post to do the callings to get people to this international event. Well, there's a snapshot of what you see every few months in the last 30 years. <laughs> well, and this is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because yeah. when LRH observed, they're going off post to do that. He said, look, we're not in the business of putting on events. We're in the business of clearing a planet. And you can't do that if you're taking people off their posts to do all these other things. So he made these international events illegal. That's it. We're not ever doing international events again. Then the first international event that occurred was the announcement that LRH had died. There's an irony. And yeah, and then they started again. But now look what happens here. Here's the entire church network. You know, field groups, missions, orgs, ashos, uh, St. Hills, AOs, and then flag. And you get this this network that's just working beautifully and the, and the motions are flowing up the line. Now, the FSM program comes in and wipes out selection. So it wipes out the front end, wipes out the missions, the, the bottom run. And then this interesting thing happens where this little pissed guy walks out on a big stage and he briefs the whole world on what's happening in Scientology. Back before him, you know who briefed you on this stuff? Was your mission holder mm -hmm. or the org CO. Mm -hmm. In other words, you use the network, and your senior would tell you what's going on. You had local events, local org events, and so forth and bigger. But when these breakthroughs and stuff came through, they were always told to you by your immediate seniors. Mm -hmm. now, now, you know what happens when you bypass a network. The entire network collapses. Right. It's called danger conditions, responsibility for declaring. Uh-huh. Now, you bypass somebody, he immediately is in danger. So when this little guy stood up on the stage and was briefing the whole world, these big international events, which everybody had to go off, off post for to fill, he would bypass the entire command network and unmock them, in fact, to be the guy who's calling the shots. Mm -hmm. right. Just that singular action of international events was enough to crash the church all by itself. Never mind the field staff member program, the alteration of the OCA, which was a huge overnight committed in the early 80s to the point where they were not only dysfunctional, they were quite invalidative of the public uh, to the various, other, I mean, the alteration of the definition of an FN. I mean, you know. Yeah, you could go on and on and on from that point you, on. You can just go on and on and on. That's yeah. right. But that was, 
But they knew the first thing they had to do was to stop the dissemination of Scientology. Like LRH says, the SP always attacks dissemination lines first. Mm-hmm. So to answer your earlier question, Jonathan, um, why do I suppose this happened? This was intended to happen by the people who took over the church. Mm-hmm. They needed to destroy Scientology. And make no mistake, these people are not stupid. Remember, they took the materials in Los Angeles and Washington way back in the 60s. There were people who were very, very well studied in the materials of Scientology. And like Ron said, uh, any technology that can free a people, a civilization, can also be used to enslave it. Mm-hmm. And we needed to be alert to whose hands it fell into. Well, these agencies that took over the church... Uh, all had these materials, and, and they were well-studied, and they knew precisely how to change things, how to attack it, to bring it to its knees. And they just carried out that campaign. I, I, am, I am not personally in agreement with the idea that David Miscavige did it. It's a wrong who. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a wrong indication. He doesn't have the bandwidth to do this. And I mentioned this to some of the guys who worked up at Int. And boy, do they disagree with me loudly on this point. And uh, truthfully, they were very close to this guy. Mm-hmm. They saw how evil he was. But they also didn't recognize that this guy is not OEC trained. He's not FEBC trained. He's not data series evaluator course trained. He was a failed class five auditor. And he was OT5, not finished on OT5. Many people that you ask in the church today, where is the bridge? Oh, he's like OT-16 or he's OT-20 or some damn thing. They have such a pie-in-the-sky view of this guy. Mm-hmm. But he was a communicator. He was trained in getting compliance. That's what he was trained for. And a cameraman. He was very good with a camera. But, That's really interesting. So basically he yeah. has presented an easy person to blame. That's right. It was just a a lightning rod put on the top of the building to attract the lightning. Mm -hmm. Let's attack DM. Let's attack the church. No, no, no. Believe me. There are bottomless pockets behind the Church of Scientology because now the Church of Scientology exists to keep the people of this planet from discovering Scientology. That's, That's just, you can state that as a simple purpose of the current church. That's just the way it is. Uh, that might rattle some timbers, that might rattle some realities out there, but the truth of the matter is, it's like a suppressive person who just walked in the room. And you want to get up this bridge? Okay, the first thing you've got to do is this endless training cycle where you have to know everything verbatim, and God forbid you should miss a read. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, like Ron said, you learn how to audit by auditing people. This is why I love the idea of book one campaigns. Just get people to get the Dianetics book and form little groups where they're co-auditing each other and they learn by doing it. That's what called the, caused the original boom. Uh-huh. It was the Dianetics boom of the early 50s. I mean, it was, it was monstrous. It was monstrous. And from those auditors, LRH pulled all of his original team. And then the teams from around the world, they got it all in because of Dianetics. In any case, now I'm, I'm starting to ramble off the point, Jonathan. You were, you were asking for that period of time right after the pilot. Uh-huh. Uh, but then, then when we were talking about, uh, now we're up in 1982 with my tour, I'm getting this material out, and the 
money paid for training is booming. I mean, it's it's just rocketing all over the place because people are getting rehabbed on their interest in the TRs, which everybody had done, but now everybody was discovering, oh, I didn't understand that. Now it's even better than it was. I mean, you were taking the wins they had and, and magnifying them many times. Mm-hmm. So that was bringing people back in the door. They were getting trained and so forth. But then 1982 hit, the mission holders were taken out because of the FSM program uh, being misapplied. And, and so we did a little loop there. That's why the mission holders were taken out. Okay, and if, if I, could, yeah. I, I could pause you there for a second. It, it, I'm not quite sure what you, you've heard, what you experienced, what you know on this. I think the thing that I run into when I pass these stories along with the Mission Holders Conference and everything is the first, it seems like the first thing people ask is, so where was LRH in all of this? What what happened that he didn't know what was, was going on? And, you know, there's the stories that you can find on the internet as far as he had kind of divested himself of the day-to-day organizational activities on a worldwide scale and was busy writing his books and uh, working on the upper levels, things of that nature. I mean, from your standpoint, as Mark Schreffler, the guy in San Francisco, what were you seeing at that time? Well, at that time, (coughs) at that time, I wasn't actually seeing a real picture. Mm Mm-hmm. At that time, we had these illusions that international management uh, was an idyllic place. Uh, okay. The streets and... were paved with gold and so forth. Okay, yeah, let's so let's we, follow that line. Well, we all we were all under that illusion, and as long as LRH was around, we could always just write him a letter, you know. And, and it was always great getting Tom back from Ron, and he always answered via mail. So, uh, um, yeah, those are the days when everybody pictured what it was like up lines because we see how well we have it here. And, I mean, we're creating ideal things. We're creating successful businesses and successful missions. We're just applying the materials that are in the books. So you figure, well, gosh, if we're doing this well, how well were they doing up the lines? But there was no information coming about how they were doing up the lines. So it was this veil it wasn't really a veil of secrecy. We didn't notice it. But LRH actually went off the lines in the late 70s. You know, after the pilot, he uh, just sort of went off. And in the early 80s, you know, he had a stroke. And and uh, he had David Mayo come in and, you know, help him with this. And, and out of this, Knotts was created. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a fascinating evolution because Knotts was created as a repair action, as you know, for for OTs who had been audited on Dianetics. Mm -hmm. It's a repair action. If you were an OT and you hadn't ever been audited on Dianetics, then a repair action wouldn't be appropriate for you. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the bridge, you would certainly do. But the bridge, you see, remember, was in place. It was up through OT7. And uh, all of those OT levels were replaced by these materials that were the last materials LRH worked on before he dropped his body. Mm -hmm. 
uh, worked on those with uh, David Miscavige or David Mayo. And um, so David, David had all this material. But remember, the OT levels already existed uh, before. What occurred through the 80s is the OT levels that LRH had priorly created were replaced by the new era dynetics for OT's materials. They were just spread over the top of the bridge uh, and said, okay, now you're going to do after three, and then you do this, this. Now you're on to the first part of knots, uh, OT4, and then OT5 is, you know, audited knots, and then OT6 is an OT7, and then OT8, you're actually a knots completion. Mm-hmm. But that's all knots. It's all a repair action. Mm-hmm. You haven't even touched the upper bridge yet. Mm-hmm way LRH laid it out. And that wasn't actually done until Captain Bill came along. And, you know, after LRH was off the lines, you know, uh, Captain Bill actually came along and, and took responsibility for this huge emission of the upper bridge. Uh-huh. No, nobody had really noticed that they'd been hoodwinked. And the, the, the OT levels that LRH developed had been replaced by this repair action that began with his stroke. And the why was found. He had been audited over Dianetics for many hours. Uh-huh. And so Mayo came in and uh, helped him get fixed up and stuff. But, uh, but then soon after that, but he was very much sidelined. Keep in mind, the church had been infiltrated for some years. Now, this is very conspiracy theory and da-da-da-da-da. And there are people who go poo-poo-pa-pa. But if you can believe that one guy with no training, no admin training, no tech training, no familiarity with the technologies of Scientology could come in and make all these thousands of changes, rewrite all of these books, and do that on his own? I'm, I'm sorry. This is not possible. It's on a much bigger scale, in other words. Do I still have you? Yeah, we're still here. It's it's on a much bigger scale, in other words. Oh, yeah, this is... The Scientology had to go. And and this wasn't because of David Miscavige. And there's other tales about that, but it's all hearsay. But uh, the truth of the matter is, LRH told us on a number of occasions... That you know about the Knee Plus Ultra program and about all these various intrigues and stuff. You told us about the twelve people who were actually running this planet, and the fact that Scientology runs right into their teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, when a person uh, is doing things secretly and he doesn't want you to find out about it, and then he finds out that you have discovered a technology that allows you to reveal secrets. That person is going to attack you. Right. And that's precisely what occurred, but on an international scale. I cannot imagine the life LRH was leading towards the end of his life with all of these energies and powers and beingnesses and so forth focused against him and the technologies that he developed. I mean, let's face it, to this day, and it's now, what, 30 years after he died, Mm-hmm. He is still reviled on the internet. Right. You, you, you scroll his name and he was a con man, he was this, he was this, he was this. Mm-hmm. Uh, unbelievable. And you even see people who are working up lines 
who are saying things that make you realize, gee, when we were thinking it was the land of milk and honey up there, we didn't realize there was a place called the hole. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize that there were people being beat and stuff like that. Of course, this is way after LRH, but the truth is, it was a, a demon's nest. It was a snake bed of, of dissatisfied and stressed out people. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, uh, I came to realize that we in the field who were applying the technology and having these wins and booming businesses all over the place, we were the ones that were experiencing a much more ideal scene than they were at the international strata. Mm-hmm. I, I guess anyway. the thing that I'd like to ask, uh, as far as from my own viewpoint, and I believe Terry's as well, and Bill chime in on this. Uh, do you think that, you know the reference where he talks about the inability to confront evil? Uh, and no. even he, he had a hard time confronting evil in some situations. Do you think that particular inability to confront evil is where this whole thing started back in the early 80s? Or was there an earlier beginning to that with uh, the FDA raids? Or what's your viewpoint on that? I actually have no opinion on that because I have I had no personal experience. Mm-hmm. Even through the eighties, I had no idea any of this stuff was going on uh-huh. because I was living in the bubble of the San Francisco Mission, and we were booming. You know, we created a group called Sterling Management. Uh, we, we we assisted in the creation of groups like Singer Consultants and so forth. A number of consulting groups that are still around today. We started way back when. Mm-hmm. And we started them fundamentally for the reason of, of introducing people to the technology. Mm-hmm. So they were boom days, and we were completely consumed with that. So we didn't even recognize the loss of the mission network, for example, or the destruction of it. We were just so focused on what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So we really didn't know what was happening at Blast. Now, since then, uh, when I was doing my doubt formula, many years later in FLAG, I did a lot of research into in, on the internet to track some of these lines down. Mm-hmm. Of course, I knew what LRH had said in policy, but now what has actually occurred? Who actually took over the church? What were the legal uh, situations going on? Who's pocketing all this money? I mean, billions of dollars from the IAS and so forth. Uh, but there's nothing for training. Mm-hmm. Lords are collapsed. Mm-hmm. They're just real estate investments, and the church doesn't even own those real estate investments. I think it's probably just a bunch of attorneys and finance people in Washington, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But that's my opinion. The, the fact of the matter is, <laughs> what we're talking about right now, and, and this amount of conversation about it, is more conversation than I've had in the last two years. I am I am so over that whole game. Right. It, it's all ancient history, mm-hmm. and it's it's fascinating to report it for people who didn't know any of this was going on. But it's fascinating from the viewpoint only that it will actually assist the people in getting their wits around how a subject as un, as incredible as Scientology could have been so utterly side railed, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the hope of this, of course, is that it's going to affect some people to have another look. 
find a few words, you know. Mm-hmm. Look into this a little more, because you will discover historically that this really was what Ellery said it was. It's the, the, the greatest hope that man has for recovering uh, a civilization that we can all be very proud of. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned lapses as far as uh, your doubt formula. Have we covered all of those points, or are there any other points that you'd like to touch on? Uh, no, there was a, uh, you know, of course, when you do a doubt formula, you examine the intentions and activities and so forth. So on the one thing you cannot do in the church, which I found quite interesting, is you cannot examine the stats. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will not show you stats. Uh, they will not show you a definition of command intention. It doesn't exist in any policy, at least one that I could find. It doesn't exist in the admin dictionary, not the dictionary that, that I had. Uh, so when they were sec-checking me, uh, and they would say, do you have any disagreements with LRH? No, or you know, floating. Do you have any disagreements with command intention? Well, my response was, well, if command intention agrees with LRH intention, I don't have any problem with it. And that stopped the sec-check in its tracks. Mm-hmm. And the auditor was going, uh, well, do you have any disagreements? I said, look, I, you show me the command intention. I don't even know what the word means. You're, maybe what you're getting on the meter is uh, just a misunderstood word because it's not in the admin dictionary, and it's not in any dictionary that I have seen as command intention used in the church. That was the end of that particular subject, and then they started to get very worried about Uncle Shreffy. Why, now, why do you suppose that is? What could you distill that down in, in retrospect? Yeah, there was there was probably no Scientologist in the world, in the field, who knew more Scientologists than I did. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was traveling everywhere doing dissemination lectures and uh, consulting and so forth. I was, geez, I was on every continent. I mean, I was traveling, you know, 100, 150 days a year, uh, touring Australia and New Zealand and, you know, Thailand and all over the place. And I was disseminating fool. And, of course, everybody invited me in because whenever I came in, I'm a, I'm a new public guy. So we would do these big public events, and the orgs would boom, and missions would boom, and then we'd do other events and uh, train people in, in the OCA and so forth. And so I knew, in fact, the people who brought me into these fields were the opinion leaders in those fields. And um, we, we were just all old friends. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly, this one guy is starting to go, wait a minute, what's happening here? What's this all about? What's this ideal work program? There's, there's policies that LRH wrote express, expressly opposite of what you're saying here. And this really spooked them because they thought, boy, we got to handle Schreffler because he knows too many people. Mm-hmm. I'm actually surprised it didn't send Guido the killer pimp. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and, and today maybe they wish they had because uh, I was certainly going south and nobody was sending me to Qual. I couldn't get into Qual. I couldn't just get give me some word clearing. <laughs> Qual was my stable datum mm-hmm. until the late 2000s. 
I never went into qual, but I didn't come out blown out of my socks, understanding what it was that I didn't understand. Now I couldn't even get into qual, and this is the most important evolution of my life. How is it that you have this going on? Mm -hmm. So now I'm, again, getting sidetracked. Boy, I do go on, don't I? <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. I wanted to back up a little bit as far as what you were talking about on the paradise concept and the land of milk and honey and all of that. Did you, did you have any more you wanted to say about that as far as the, the ant management viewpoint that promulgated all of this that we've just been talking about? No, really not. I'm sure I wasn't alone in this assumption that if we're doing this well here, imagine how well they're doing uplines. Mm -hmm. Because we always figured the closer you get to LRH, the better things would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that might have been true one day. I don't know. I was never uplines for any extend, extended period of time. And I never saw any of these things myself, these things that I later read about. I did understand that there were a number of Sea Org members that I'd met over the years who would attend my workshops and get blown out of their socks. And these are workshops for new people. <laughs> these, these are for brand new people. And I'm doing a workshop and watching these Sea Org members in the back room going, whoa, whoa, wow, wow, that's fantastic. And I'm going, that's fantastic? How long have you been in Sea Org? Oh, for 15 years. But this is it's like, Jesus, man, this is called the ARC triangle. Right. Wow. And, and it puts questions into your head about, gee, who's, what's really going on up the lines? But who had the time to think about it? Because we were very busy always, mm -hmm. and very happily so, because invariably the effect of the technology when you apply it is greater liberty, uh, greater communication, greater duplication, understanding. It's, it's, it's almost embarrassing to get paid to do this. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God. I walk out of here every night thinking, my God, I do this for nothing. <laughs> it's a fantastic game we have here. Just a fantastic game. It's the only game where everybody wins. Right. So, And it just became a game that nobody can win. Before we get to um, how you leaving the church, would you maybe describe some of the experiences you had with the tech and how you used it to help others, like specific examples of how others were benefited from your dissemination, etc.? Well, you know, my dissemination is just basically keeping things very simple and laying things out in a way that could, people could understand and apply. Um, but it's an interesting thing because in, in the policy or the bulletin standard technology, uh, LRH talks about the fact that the greatest win a person has is when they first realize that Scientology exists, that something exists that actually works. This happens for many on the communications course. This happens for some people when they're getting product cleared for their post. This happens to some when they're getting false data strips so they can really understand something new. Um, but the point is that first realization, because understand, 
I know this is true of me and, and probably true for you guys as well. We were searchers. Mm-hmm. We were looking around. Mm-hmm. And we were confused by all the options and alternatives. And my God, there was a lot of it. And after two years in India and interacting with so many people with so many different ideas about how to discover yourself, never occurred to me that you'll never do that. Because <laughs> you're the one that's looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like you can suddenly glance over your shoulder and see yourself. Oh, there it's you are. It's not ever going to happen. What's that? Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> that ain't going to ever happen. But there are so many people asking this question for so long. But when you, when you come and you start studying this stuff and you suddenly go, holy smokes, this actually works. This actually makes sense. That is a huge win. So if I want to talk to you about the wins that I've seen over the years, I could tell you the greatest wins that I have are when I'm doing a workshop and that guy's eyeballs roll on their heads, roll on his head. And he puts his head back and goes, oh, my God. And I realized that guy is now on the road to truth. Right. That guy has arrived at the beginning of his road out. And you got 30 people in the room and you see this experience rolling around the room. Uh, I have these wins literally every week of my life. And it never gets old. But I can tell you uh, the various textures of the win occur depending on the environment you're in. I went into... Uh, Sony, for example, and uh, some of a guy who became a friend later on was a sales manager for a division of Sony, which is the broadcast division, and uh, you know the smallest product they have is a seventy-five thousand uh, dollar VCR. But they sell stuff to television stations and radio stations and that sort of thing. These are big ticket items, and this is a four billion dollar a year division. And this guy attended one of my sales workshops and came up to me afterwards and said, man, we can really use your help. I said, well, who are you? Who are we? And he said, Sony, the broadcast division for Sony in the United States. And I said, well, I'm interested. What, what can we do here? And, uh, well, I went to uh, San Jose where their office is, their headquarters, talked to the managing director of this division and a number of his staff and debriefed him for a couple of hours and then uh, said, yeah, I think there's something that I can uh, do to assist you here. And they asked me, uh, well, how, how much how much would that cost? And, I, I, you know, now I'm dealing here with Sony. I'm, <laughs> I had always been dealing before with uh, chiropractors and dentists and so forth <laughs> So I just reached into my hat and picked out the largest number that I could say without stumbling. And he said, oh, that's no problem. And I thought, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Should have gone higher. Bite my tongue. I should have told him five times as much. I like to make him squeal a little bit anyway. (laughs) But uh, they happily paid my fee for a one-day workshop. 
And in that workshop, we revealed the reason why Sony's statistics had been in a seven-year nosedive. They went from a 94% market share to a 76% market share in seven years. And, uh, and, and they were calling me in to handle their sales division. So you know, the first thing that I knew was true is that their problem isn't the sales division. Because, you know, when you set out to solve a problem and the problem doesn't solve, you're solving the wrong problem. Mm -hmm. We all know that. We all think with that. But the world around us doesn't think with that. They don't even know that piece of information. When you set out to solve a problem and the problem doesn't solve, you're solving the wrong problem. These guys have been trying to solve their sales problem for seven years. Throwing millions and millions of dollars at this problem to no effect because they had a wrong why. You know, the why is the reason why a situation exists. Part of the data series. And the, that's right. And their sales were plummeting, and so they thought it was a sales problem. But in this debrief, I discovered what the problem was. And uh, so I didn't tell them what it was. I said, I think I can help you fix this. In my, in my heart, it was now beating at about 200 beats per minute, which was not blood pressure, I'll tell you. It was sheer exhilaration. Mm-hmm. Because I knew I can help these people. And then they started talking about money, which has always been a weak point with me. But um, I gave them this figure, and they accepted it without even a hiccup. And uh, I thought, okay, yeah, man, let's do this. So I delivered this workshop, and their statistics snapped around. They made more money in the next four months than they had in the prior three years. Oh, wow. And that, that whole thing reverted and just took off. And not only that, um, they had these three big sales conventions every year with 500 sales reps at each convention. And what they would do is each one of these 27 marketing vice presidents, each vice president represented a certain product. They had 27 marketing vice presidents. And each of these vice presidents went up on the stage lowered the lights, turned on his PowerPoint, and went through his talk for 30 minutes. And then the lights would go up, he'd walk off the stage, and the next guy would come on. And, uh, I mean, it was just pain. It was pain for them, it was pain for the sales guys, and so forth. Well, after this little day uh, workshop with them, they went out and got the first standing ovations in the history of their division. And their sales just shot out the roof on one little point. One little point. Uh, um, talk about other very interesting wins. You know the field of network marketing. Uh-huh. They similarly have a ruin in that industry, industry-wide. And that is the turnover of their distributors. Oh. It's a turnover their distributors. You know, you think, well, you know, this, these people sponsor two, and then those people sponsor two, and then those people sponsor two. And geez, in three weeks, you have a million distributors. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, you know, 
Well, you know, it makes sense. Rationally, that's the way it would go. It doesn't go like that. But they didn't know why it didn't go like that. They didn't know why the industry average was 2.7 people sponsored before the distributor leaves the business. 2.4. I was doing a research at the time on network marketing. So I, I grabbed a network marketing company in my by myself, and I created one of these networks. It, was, it just became huge very fast and uh, didn't even think about why. I was just doing what I thought would be the natural things to do. But here's the question. Mind you, I'm, I, if I select, if I sponsor you two guys and seven-tenths of another guy, that's all that will happen before I leave. That's the industry average. Do you follow this? Yeah. Okay. Now, you can tell me what every other Scientologist in the world can tell me. An answer to this question. What is the only reason that a person gives up on a subject or area he was once interested in? Uh -huh. Misunderstood words. That's right. Misunderstood words. Misunderstood words. It's very simple. Now, when I signed up for this, to be a distributor in this company, they sent me a box. And I opened this box, and it had product in it, and it had all this written material with you know, programs and compensation programs and a promotion for a yacht voyage in the Caribbean and all kinds of stuff that, of course, I didn't read because I didn't have the time right then to pull out a dictionary and do any word clearing. So I moved the box aside. And then realized, gee, everybody that I sponsor is going to get one of these misunderstood word bombs two weeks after he signs on. Right. It's a bomb of misunderstood words. <laughs> it explodes in his face, and he magically loses interest in the business. So I called the company and I said, I don't want to, I don't want you to send them any materials. Just send them product in their intro kits. Well, Mr. Shuffle, this is a very unusual request. <laughs> well, it might well be, but that's the way I want it. Now, I had a huge network within six months. Monstrous. None of them ever got that misunderstood word bomb in the mail. I had a garage full of boxes. And I wasn't ready to let them see this material until I was going to break them into the material myself. But they were doing very fine without all the literature. They were getting nice checks. Couldn't even figure out why. Huh. But that network grew like a weed. Why? Because I didn't allow misunderstood words in my online. Now, that simple datum, that one singular datum, could completely turn around the network marketing industry. In fact, I, I made a tape on that. I sent it over to some friends, and they wanted to get it out on the net. It's probably out there by now. And uh, this is basically the five big rules for multi-level marketing. And all these rules have to do with things that are axiomic to any Scientologist. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, every Scientologist listening to this tape has no idea the power of what they know in their hands. How many people around them could desperately use what they know and how much fun it is to get it out. Mm -hmm. 
I've, I've been having a ball for 40 years with this material. I'm making a very good living, and uh, I have a lot of friends. You know, I'm just a happy camper. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the biggest win I continually experience are my own, just in seeing this technology move out. So how many people would you say that you've gotten on the bridge in the last 40 years? Actually, I kept track of that until about 97 or 98, and it was 20,000. That's a lot of people. Uh, Well, it's all relative. Yeah. Uh, You have to keep in mind, this was my business. Mm-hmm. And I was I was a public speaker, and I was on stage talking to as many as twenty five hundred people at a time. Mm-hmm. I was uh, talking on radio and television and so forth, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kept track of this as far as we could. I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who picked up the Dianetics book. But uh, the interesting thing is, in retrospect, um, I realized all of this was happening through the eighties and nineties. During that period, all of these alterations and squirrel stuff was happening in the church. I didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. So in effect, in retrospect, I got an awful lot of people that I threw into a meat grinder. Oh. You follow? Mm-hmm. Now, honestly, to be fully responsible for this, I need to take responsibility for the fact that I, I put an awful lot of people into a church. And the church never meant anything to me particularly, except for the fact that it's a place where people can get Scientology technology. Mm-hmm. And when I when I discovered that it's no longer delivering that technology, I left. There was absolutely no parting pains. I didn't miss any aspect of it. Because, you know, the only thing I had were my friends who shared my viewpoints about the dissemination of the technology and they shared my wins and so on. I was a little surprised but many more of my friends didn't leave because it's not like I withheld myself from them. Mm-hmm. I was I was as verbal as I could be, but uh, uh, you know when when you're getting sex checked until you're turning blue, the rest of your life you're watching yourself. You're so introverted, and you're so concerned that you might commit an overt. That then you're going to require a sec check for and pay another $15,000 that suddenly um, peeling a Snickers bar incorrectly becomes a matter of grave concern to you. <laughs> right. Paralyzed These guys are just, oh, they're just so up their ass. Mm-hmm. And the higher you go on the bridge, <clears throat> the more sec checks you get. So these guys just, uh, they're just walking around looking in the mirrors at themselves. Mm-hmm. Am I committing an over here? Ooh, should I be talking to that guy? Oh, that'll come up on a set check. Whoops, don't want to do that. And uh, they don't have any idea what's going on. They're quite confused. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a pity to see. But nevertheless, we are all, each and every one of us, responsible for our own condition. So... Uh, my advice to the people I've run into who have had confusions, whether in or out of the church, is if you stop looking for yourself, your life is over. Mm-hmm. If you stop keeping your own personal integrity in, well, you know, have a nice day because uh, there's no more point to what's going on. 
you know, if you don't have a sense of mission in your life, then that mission isn't aligned to the greatest good and so forth. But you find there's some people you just can no longer communicate with. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's what that is. So when did you ultimately, what was the, the last year that you were in the church? Uh, 2012, uh, early 2012, I, I uh, actually wrote my letter, posted it on uh, a famous uh, website at the time. And it was actually, it went viral. The media picked it up and it went all over the place. Mm-hmm. So at that point, the church couldn't do anything but uh, declare me and expel me. And uh, I have friends who have actually got to see my declare order. As it was quite a laugh. Oh. It was quite a laugh. I mean, you know, and, you know, there is a reason why the church, you know, back in the early days, you would get a copy of the goldenrod that gave the findings of your committee of evidence. Right. Goldenrod being the color of the paper that it's written on. And, uh, they don't do that anymore today because the church would buckle under the weight of libel lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I never received mine either. Yeah, and you'll never receive it, Jonathan, because I guarantee you, to justify declaring all these people, they had to tell lies about them. Mm-hmm. And there is malicious intent by the very nature of the thing. This is libel. These are, these are written lies intended to defame a person. It is the most legally hard and fast rule. And so they very tightly control the release of these. In fact, I saw Dan Coons declare order when I was at Flag because somebody wrote a knowledge report on me that they knew I was in communication with Dan. And so OSA called me in and, uh, he sat me down and said, I'd like you to read this knowledge report. And uh, it was a knowledge report written by somebody who had commented that I was in communication with Dan Kuhn. And uh, I said, yeah, this is a correct report. She said, you're in communication with Dan Kuhn. And I said, yes, I definitely am. He's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And she said, are you aware that he's been expelled and declared? I said, well, you know, he told me that he thought he had. It was probably the, uh, one of the, uh, what is that mountain with all, oh, the Mount Rushmore uh, of declares. <laughs> and uh, I laughed about it. He, he said he thought it might be just the Mount Rushmore of declares. And I laughed. And she said, you think this is funny? And I said, I think it's hysterical. <laughs> We're talking here about Dan Coon. <laughs> I mean, I, like I said, he's my friend. I know this guy. Uh, this guy is, you know, he's delightful in every way. Artistic. He's, he's an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. And so she whipped out his uh, declare order. And she handed me page one. Oh, wow. And she held on to the rest of them close to her chest. Then I read it. Turned it over. Read the back. Page two. Page three. There were 12 pages. <laughs> But I got to six pages, and here was half a page devoted to his time on the TR's pilot. (laughs) Now, the guy who wrote this declare order 
was rock slamming so hard his head was knocking from side to side. It was very clear that the intention of this person who was writing this thing was not doing it as a justice action, but to absolutely say, we don't ever want to see your ugly face again. There was no sense of even a tinge of justice in this thing. Now, I couldn't speak to the reality of anything in this report, certainly some of it from uh, Sessions and so forth. But uh, um, this is not Dan Coon I'm reading about. But then here is half a page devoted to his time while he was running the TR's pilot. Now is something I knew something about because I was with Dan literally 14 hours a day. Mm-hmm. For that whole period. And, uh, you know, I read that and I handed it back to her and she said, yeah, I've seen enough. And she said, so what do you think? I said, it's all bullshit. And she says, what do you mean bullshit? I says, well, I, I can speak to one paragraph. This is the bottom of this page. He was on the TR's call. Do you know Dan Coon? I asked her. And she said, well, I've never met him. I said, well, I have. We practically slept together. For the entire pilot. I mean, I'm not saying we slept together, by the way. Right. But I was with him 14 hours a day. We spent just about every waking moment together. And I can tell you that none of the things mentioned on this report ever happened. This is complete horseshit. Now, you know, when you have a witness on the stand and, and uh, he's being cross-examined, if you can catch him in one lie, his entire testimony is thrown out. Mm-hmm. And that's what I told her. This I know this is a complete lie. I don't care about the rest of it. I don't have to see about the rest of it. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's not a suppressive. And she says, so you're not going to disconnect from him? I said, absolutely not. I, I'm not going to disconnect from anybody that I don't want to disconnect from. And he's, he is my friend, like I said. And uh, then they, they really didn't know what to do about it. So they finally come at me try to get me to come to my senses. That's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line, the church will not. I mean, Dan has never seen his order either. And as you can see, she was holding the one page at the time, handing them out. They would be in serious legal hot water if there was a class action suit brought and people demanded to see their the declare orders that resulted in them being declared and expelled and so forth. Uh, I, you know, the church will hide behind its church banner and stuff. But if that day ever comes, uh, all of that wealth the church generated to create these so-called ideal orgs that are all empty, and uh, the IAS, which is just a floating ship in the Caribbean, uh, they would need all the money they have to redistribute to that congregation so badly gouged so many years. Uh You know, as you know, it's just a criminal activity that risks start to stop.